0: Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers.
1: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa.
0: And I'm Juliette.
1: And today is a very special episode of Attack the Final Girls because we have our first podcast, full podcast guests Mm -hmm. on. Uh, We are joined today by Brantley and Nick from the Amazing Horror Draft podcast. Soon you'll be able to listen to our episode with them. And today, they're on our podcast. So thanks very much for being with us, guys.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to be here.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. That's an honor. I didn't realize we we're the first. So that's that's yeah phenomenal. Thanks. That's exciting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We were super excited to do this, uh, as we called it, a crossover episode with y'all. The movie choice for tonight, I think, is going to be a really fun one to talk about. First watch, first, I think, full watch, first watch for Brantley, and beloved favorite of Nick.
3: (laughs) I do like it.
0: Yeah. So
1: tonight we're talking about Cemetery Man, the 1994 film. This was, for me, Teresa, this is my first watch ever. It's a favorite of my partner's, but I had never seen it myself. And I love Italian horror because you never know what you're going to get. It's going to be batshit. It's going to be tons of fun. You'll probably see some really weird practical effects, You'll see some very strange storytelling and logic to go through the movie, so I was really excited to crack into it.
0: I'm pretty sure I've seen nearly all of this movie before, but I don't know that I've ever seen it in one single watch through. This is one that's like been on at my house before, and I've caught stretches of it, and I thought I had seen the whole movie, but this felt like a nearly first watch for me.
1: And Nick, you said this is one of your favorites. When was the first time you got to encounter this film?
3: It's definitely not my first watch, but it's been a long time. I think it had been released on VHS a long time, like back in 97. I think it was in theaters in 96 in the US. And then the DVD didn't really come out here until uh, 2006. And someone gave it to me when it was released. And I loved it and watched it a bunch. And that was when uh, we were in college. And uh, I think more than anything, what struck me was just how gorgeous the movie was. And I I don't think that I really, it's been like, you know, almost 20 years since I saw it. So this was kind of a fresh watch this time. And I think I took away completely different things. You know, I don't know, I'm treating this like a first time watch again. It really felt like that.
1: And Brantley, I know this was, you said yesterday was the first time you've ever seen it. Are you a fan of Italian cinema? Are you new to Italian cinema?
2: No, I'm a fan. I mean, I certainly don't have the depth or breadth of knowledge of it that I would like. And I think, you know, Nick and I have sort of discussed that kind of giallo is a little bit of like a kind of blind spot, because I've seen some, but I feel like it's such a large, I don't even know if genre is the right word for say to giallo, because it's a whole kind of style in and of itself. and, And genre feels kind of... I don't know, limiting (laughs) in that way. But um, I do enjoy it, but it's something that I feel like I definitely need to be watching more of to get more informed about it.
1: Sure, I could totally see that, the genre being limiting, because it feels like there are horror movies that are giallo, there are thrillers, there's mysteries, Mm -hmm. there's noir. So it really kind of crosses genres. So I totally understand that. Italian cinema, though, is some of the... I think as American movie watchers, we're kind of spoiled with needing like, (laughs) what did we say the other day when we were watching um, Repo? We need like a conflict and a resolution. Mm -hmm. In Italian movies, no. Don't even worry about that. (laughs) So I think that that makes sense that it's kind of a reflection of Italian like cultural filmmaking as a process or as a product. They're just like totally different. They just go about things in a very strange way. Yeah,
0: European cinema in general, you know, goes a little farther in terms of symbolism and surrealism and things like that on the regular, like not just in what we would consider art house films, you know, that is part of their cinema culture where here in America, especially in 2023 America, we are so used to very straightforward, you know, not to begrudge our Marvel movies and our Star Wars movies, but we're used to a pretty straight bad thing happens, hero comes in kind of formula. And that is not the case in other cinema traditions, um, especially from the European tradition.
1: Yeah, it feels a lot more experimental. But just to give you a quick overview, Cemetery Man was released in 1994. Uh, original title was Della Morte, Della Morte. It's Italian. And we have Rupert Everett, who plays our main character, Francesco Della Morte. We have Francois. I'm going to butcher this name, so bear with me here. Francois Haji lazzaro who plays Nagi. And we have Anna Falci. She plays she. That's all she's credited as. She covers several different characters within the movie, but that's kind of our main cast of characters Pretty small cast. Mm -hmm. I think that the budget was fairly small on this film too, but it's about, I don't even know, how do you even describe? (laughs) Um, It's about a engineer. (laughs) Air quotes, engineer. (laughs) An engineer who is the keeper of a cemetery and dead bodies raised from the ground after seven days. That's not even the chaos part. And then chaos ensues. After that. (laughs) So it's a wild ride through and through. We're going to crack into it. We can't wait to talk about this with our guests because I feel like this is a
0: movie that must be enjoyed with others. Indeed, indeed. So I want to start us off with a question for the room. Is this a zombie film? I don't even know how to answer that.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. I was going to let Nick answer first since he's watched this more.
3: <laughs> I'll answer it this way, which is that... Um, Last night when I was getting ready to watch it, my wife asked me what I was watching, and the only way I could describe it was like, it's an arthouse zombie film. Mm. It's like a zombie film that's really not about the zombies, but it, it very, in my mind, it very clearly is a zombie film, just because there are undead things rising from the grave. So in that sense, it's kind of cut and dry, but like, that's probably the one and only thing that's really cut and dry about the whole movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm.
2: It's true. <laughs> yeah. It's like in a technical sense, it is a zombie movie, as, you know, people who are dead rise from their grave literally uh, very often within the film. But it certainly doesn't play into many of the tropes of a lot of zombie films that we, at least, that we would be used to here in the U.S., for sure.
1: Yeah, I would say that to me, they strike me more as ghouls. Mm. You know, zombie movies, at least in the tradition that I'm used to, are merely a metaphor. And we're talking about something bigger, some bigger issue. I don't really see that being the case here. It's almost like a ghost story, or a ghoul story more than it is about zombies.
0: Once again, like I'm used to anyways. (laughs) But what do you think, Juliet? Well, I think it is certainly a movie with zombies in it. And certainly in the more American and British tradition, it does lack some of the things we're used to. But when you think about Fulci, it kind of Mm. toes that line, because a lot of Fulci's zombies, especially beyond zombie slash zombie 2, get into that territory where they're skirting the line between, is it a ghoul? Is it a ghost? Is it a zombie? Is it a something else that's sort of spinning off of these, you know, mainly Romero traditions? So I think it's kind of a yes and or a yes, maybe. And also, like,
1: are they even real? You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which we're going to I think we're definitely going to crack into that a little later. But yeah, like, do they even exist? Is this even something that, you know, are we in somebody's figment of their imagination? But yeah, as the first time watch, I can tell you for sure that I spent a lot of the movie squinting at the TV and just saying, is that the choice that we're going to make in this situation from the very beginning? Like as soon as we start, I'm like, okay,
0: there are choices being made and they're real weird. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to ask you guys along those lines, tell me a little bit about your journey through this film, because I think my journey was similar to Teresa's with a very different ending. But as you were watching through kind of, what were your impressions and how did those change by the time you got to the end?
2: I mean, when I started it, I really had no idea what to think. And as it, you know, began, um, it has a really great opening. I think it's a very, like, fun and enjoyable opening. And it sort of, like, sets you up for, oh, this is going to be one type of film. And then it slowly kind of morphs and goes on all these different paths. And you're like, oh, no, I guess it's this type of movie. So my feelings and thoughts about the movie were constantly evolving as I was watching it. Because, um, you know, we've discussed kind of, like, Logic and things like that. It doesn't really prescribe to a specific logic. It has this very dreamlike quality to it, which I think you get used to as the film goes on. So I kind of, after, I don't know, half hour or 40 minutes, was just like, okay, I'm just along for the ride because I don't know what to expect at all with this movie. It's going in all these different areas. And I really enjoyed it. It was kind of like a breath of fresh air compared to a lot of different, you know, typical three act structure films that like we're used to seeing. So I really enjoyed the ride of this film and had a great
3: time with it.
0: Nick, what about you?
3: Yeah, I was trying to think back to like, again, when I first saw it, I think my impressions were really different. So I tried to disregard that and just kind of come in totally fresh. And I think last night when I was rewatching it for the first time, I agree with Brantley. I think my mind was going all sorts of places. I think my recollection of the movie was that it was a lot more, like, fractured, fragmented. The first thing I was struck by last night upon completing the movie was, wow, you know, that movie does have, like, a single sort of through-line narrative. Barely. It's clearly not about that, but, like, it it was way more... I just remembered it being, like, in three very distinct parts, and it's not that at all. That was just my memory playing tricks on me. I mean, there is... There is a movie there that you can watch from start to finish and it's not, you know, beyond that, it's just like my mind is going everywhere as I'm watching it. It's like, to Brantley's point, I mean, it starts with a bang, literally, and it's like an incredible hook opening and uh, some like dark humor right off the bat. And I'm like, okay, I'm on board with that. But, you know, it shifts really quickly into that art house, those art house vibes. I mean, it becomes almost like a distraction, when you're watching it, and you're like, this movie is too gorgeous for its own good. You know, there's clearly symbolism here. I'm not sure exactly what that is a symbol of, but it's distracting me from trying to just, like, follow this. And then your mind goes back to, holy crap, this is so bizarre and out there. I'm laughing my ass off here. And wow, this is, like, really dark and kind of weirdly philosophical and touching here. It's just, it's all over the place. And, like, I don't know how I could describe it beyond that. It's just like, you It's a movie you have to experience for yourself and just like, you can't really prep somebody for this. Like you said, it's not really like, you can't be like, we're going to watch a zombie film because people will be disappointed. And you can't say like, we're going to go watch an independent art house film because people are going to see zombies and be upset. It's just, it's all over the place, which is part of what I love about it.
1: Yeah, totally. It really is a film all on its own. And you can't really go in with any preconceived notions about what it is. I mean, aside from the name you know that there's going to be a cemetery probably (laughs) and with italian films in general i think that it's all about atmosphere it's all about creating you know the vignette and it less about like a through line in the story because you can never bet on anything it could be that you know two-thirds of the way through the movie you find out that none of this is real and everything is fake and this is all in somebody's dream but on the other hand You're immersed in these set pieces that are so beautiful and so tactile. And the word that I keep using lately, which is crunchy, like really something to sink your teeth into, that you get distracted. And then you're like, oh, it's okay that none of this makes sense. It's okay that this cop is making some strange choices. It's okay that we're not really on the side of the protagonist and he's doing some stuff that's not good in general it's okay that bad things are happening because we're in this beautiful cemetery, this decaying cemetery, this weird muddy ossuary with a bunch of skulls and velvet in there and people are getting bitten and we're just, we're along for the ride. We can't stop. We have to
0: keep going. We have to see the end. (laughs) Yeah, I found myself shifting gears multiple times. Like when we first get introduced to... Rupert Everett, I, I was getting a little sassy, admittedly. I was like, oh man, here we go. This is like Hugh Grant, my best friend's wedding, all of those rom-coms of the 90s with the forlorn, goofy, yet still conventionally attractive British man. And it is that. But then we like shift gears into, okay, but they're zombies. And okay, now it's getting really existential. And also, I had to shift gears and think right, Italian comedies like Italian dark comedies um divorce Italian style was one of those like seminal film school films that when I saw it, I was just like, What is this?" And I had to kind of remind myself of that dark humor to get into this movie at first, because I was like, wait, people say this is funny. Now, I'm a notorious horror comedy naysayer in Mm -hmm. general. So I thought, oh, this is just me being me. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, I have to shift my comedic expectations to Italian dark comedy a little bit. Yeah. And then roll from there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I forgot that you're not a horror comedy.
0: I'm not a comedy person.
1: Yeah. I don't know what this divorce Italian style movie is, but I feel like now. We'll watch it. Okay. Is it a horror movie? (laughs) No. Okay. It's a dark comedy. Okay. All right. I'm down. There's lots of murder though. Okay. All right. Well, we both love Clue, so I'm I'm ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) So we are big soundtrack fans, Nick and Brantley. We love a good soundtrack. We love an Italian film score. You know, Juliet can rattle them all off off the top of her head because she's a total. I love music, but I don't know any of the names. And Juliette knows all the names because she has to know all the names. So what were your impressions considering most of the time an Italian movie, especially Italian horror movie, is going to have the soundtrack done all by one composer or one band. And in this case, it was a little different. It was a little off-putting. What did you guys think of the soundtrack?
2: Take it away, Nick. I want to let you go first again.
3: <laughs> I don't have much to say about the soundtrack. That's just not something that I feel like I'm very knowledgeable about in general. I didn't even realize it wasn't just by like a single composer or if it's... I had no idea. Again, I don't really pay attention to that. I think what I was struck by last night was just how much it felt to me like Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. And I think the soundtrack had mm-hmm. something to do with that. I mean, clearly the dark comedy and that sort of mood, but there's something about like the main theme and stuff that really reminds me of
2: that. So similarly, I, I feel similar to Nick here I, and similar to Teresa. I like music. I can like sing along to songs I know. I never know who has like sung them or the bands usually you know my wife gives me a hard time about that. i also am stuck my musical tastes are in like classic rock and folk and punk and everything and so like i never know new bands and things like that much to my wife's chagrin who gives me a hard time a lot about that but yeah similarly with this like i, I didn't realize it was not a single composer and that there was like you know multiple people or like a band and a composer and things like that i will echo nick's thoughts that yes it now that he mentioned it it does remind me a lot of peter jackson's uh, brain dead there but I didn't find the score in any way like distracting to me it felt like it very much like fit the tone of the film in that it felt very like kind of haunting in the way that the film feels a little haunting I think intentionally because it's you know, probably dealing with, I mean, it's Del Delamore. It's of death, of love, right? So it's, it's dealing with these, you know, two main aspects. And I felt the score fit that. I'm going to stop talking now because I feel like I'm saying nothing. Sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I fully agree with you. Like, to me, though, I was expecting something different than what we got in terms of the soundtrack. Mm. I don't know if it's just me. I was expecting weird and it actually fit. And I thought, okay, this is this is not what I was expecting. It's one of those things where like the expectation didn't live up to reality because I was just so far off of what I was thinking. And then having that like Hellraiser clip, anytime there was a motorcycle on screen, it was Aussie, it was Hellraiser, the instrumental mm-hmm. version of that. And I'm just like, okay, what a weird segue. <laughs> yeah. I think otherwise it was all done by the same composer. It was. But it wasn't the composer that they wanted. Mm. So that's another thing.
0: Well, fun fact about the composer. Uh, it was Manuel De Sica, who is the son of Vittorio De Sica, who directed The Bicycle Thieves, one of the sort of seminal oh, yeah. European films. So kind of an interesting cinema pedigree there.
2: Yeah, we uh, in the class I taught in the fall, we I had them watch that when we talked about Italian neorealism. I mean, it's a seminal work of that era. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Some of the seminal, like, Italian visuals that I was expecting, we got. I thought that the shrouds, the blowing shrouds, were very beautiful. You see that when she comes into the picture the first time, the grieving widow that Francesco later puts the moves on, slash consoles, slash falls in love with. All of the above. It's a... uh, yeah it's a lot going on but she's got this beautiful gauzy shroud that's like blowing in the wind and it's very pretty and you've also got the shroud that he puts over his face before they make out the first time which i think especially that red shroud we see that a lot in giallo films like that very vibrant crimson red and the, the like blowing shroud the very dramatic entrances which total wardrobe, you know, like envy here. I I was like, man, if I'm ever a grieving widow, I wish I looked like that. Not really, I never <laughs> want to be a grieving widow. But were there other things that you noticed that you thought were like Italian touchstones,
0: Hmm. I mean, overall, just the atmosphere of the film in general. And there were lots of nods to Jallo, you know, all of the night scenes, the way those were shot were sort of right in line with that sensibility as well. And just the way that some of this imagery factored into the storytelling, I think, is very, I don't know if it's Italian specifically, but certainly of the more Eurocentric cinema tradition. Yeah. What about you guys? What were you seeing?
3: I mean, for me, in terms of, it's not really, it's just, it's like more of a blend of audio and visual, but like that, especially Italian horror, that look of, and it's not as bad here, but the look of like having them record without audio and redub it in post. Mm -hmm is like classic italian zombie film they do a really great job here if that is indeed what they've been doing it's it's pretty natural but you can still tell in certain scenes and it's just like a staple for me of that sort of genre
2: yeah we've kind of talked about too but like just the very dreamlike nature of it like you know anytime he's out at night in the cemetery it has this kind of slightly misty slightly foggy kind of look to it that just Makes you wonder, can I believe what I'm seeing right now? Or do I really have to kind of analyze? Or do I just have to like let this scene wash over me and just not, <laughs> not try to make any judgments on it until it's done? Definitely that felt very European and, and Italian in that giallo sense.
1: I was about to say, we actually watched semi-recently The Red Queen Kill seven times. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of parallels between that movie and this one specifically the use of red, which I think is pretty common in terms of Italian horror, using red to kind of draw the eye, number one and number two. It's probably symbolism that is going right over my head, which I felt like a lot of this movie was a lot of symbolism. I really had the idea like, wow, this is about toxic masculinity. (laughs) And well, at least in part, and like the realization of friendship. But I was going to hold the friendship thought off until the end, But in terms of toxic masculinity, I wanted to talk about that. I'm just going to crack into it. Why not jump right in feet first? (laughs) Um, Let's go. So it comes in many different forms in this film. One of the ways in which it comes is everybody thinking that Francesco is harmless because they think that he is impotent or he is a eunuch, which I was like hang on a second. What? Because they just kind of toss that in. And it just comes from the detective. He's like, oh, no, we know that you couldn't have killed anybody because you are impotent. And I was like, wait a second. What? I don't understand this. How do you feel about that? Did you get the same kind of like toxic masculinity vibes
0: there? Absolutely. Yeah. There is so much to say about this. You know, they frame him as being impotent in every way, even to the point that, you know, he is incapable of murder, harm, or really any self-determination whatsoever. But I want to hear what you guys think, because rarely do we have <laughs> <laughs> a non-femme perspective in the house. Like, what yeah. did you guys think about yeah, we, this? We rarely have the
1: male gaze, so we're we, yeah. we would love to hear what you think.
2: Yeah, well, I, that's very... That's a very interesting thought because when, after watching it, I was like, I don't know what to make of this impotence, you know, right off the bat. But mentioning toxic masculinity, it's very interesting because it makes me think that the other people of the town kind of view him in the same way that he views, uh, and I apologize because I, I forget the you know, pronunciation of his... Yeah. Yes, Nagi, his sort of like helper there in the cemetery. He's like, oh, well, you know, like he's mostly harmless. Like, don't worry about him sort of thoughts about Nagi, And it's sort of how the rest of the town views him as this harmless guy who can do no wrong, essentially. And how that ties into, you know, everything that happens throughout the film. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I mean, speaking of toxic Mexican, I mean... We I've mentioned the dreamlike quality. I mean, so much of this could be a his male fantasy dream in terms of what happens throughout this film because, yeah, it really just plays into that, that fantasy he seems to have about this woman. He sees her as instantly in love and then it's the next night, I think, that they're on the grave doing the act and it's like, what world is this taking place in? Um, so anyway, Nick, I'll let you jump in there.
3: Yeah, so I after watching it, this time was like, obviously, this is there's symbolism everywhere. And I was curious what other people's interpretations of it were. So I read up on it a bunch today, and I kind of rewatched some segments. And there's all sorts of like, readings of this movie that I think are fascinating that, you know, we could talk about if we have time. But um, in terms of toxic masculinity, one thing that I found w- that was interesting was, um, and I don't know if actually this applies entirely here or not, but um, the impotence is actually like, obviously, it's a theme that kind of plays through the entire movie but it's really like there's a even deeper sort of underlying just sense of insecurity that he struggles with and it's not just being impotent it's like you see him interacting with authority figures like the mayor a lot there's a few other things um his inability to complete that puzzle Mm -hmm. there's like all sorts of things that kind of come into play and i think it's weird because his insecurities seem to be more about his relationship with death than love. I think that he's very much sure of, you know, who he is in love with and, and it happens quickly. And I don't know, in terms of toxic masculinity, that's not a real answer. I'm just like, you know, those are observations. I don't really have a real take on it. But I do think it's interesting that when he meets she, Anna Fauci's character, number one, uh, her first character, he... I know there is some sense of like, you know, he's, he is actually really self-assured. He goes up to her, he pursues her when he messes it up the first time. And like, after that first time, I, you know, you see him, he kind of screws it up. He makes a joke at, she had just lost her husband, this, this older guy who she was with, which is interesting in itself, much, much older. And he makes a, uh, a joke and, and obviously it doesn't go over well. And he's like, will I ever see her again? So he kind of bungles it the first time, but then it's weird, like, there's a weird juxtaposition where, like, you know, she comes back and immediately he wins her over in the Osuary. Like, it's just, like, instant. And then from there, it's like, as soon as he's kind of won her over, it seems to be his fantasy. I mean, she's immediate, first time you meet her, she's like, he, you know, she's talking about her husband, her older husband. He was a wonderful lover. He was tireless and blah, blah, blah. And then the next night, you know, he and she are you know are having sex and she says like oh god you were better than him in every way you're the best I've ever had or whatever and it's like very clearly just (laughs) like the male fantasy is like this beautiful woman fell for him in a day and he was better than any other lover she's ever had and all this I don't know that part struck me as, as you know it's a weird dynamic
2: and he still had to chase her, which often is like a male fantasy, but then he wins her over and right. it's a new conquest for him. Yeah. I mean, like all of that definitely plays into to so much of that, like toxic masculinity perspective for sure.
0: Oh yeah. And throughout the different manifestations of she, we see these sort of different feminine archetypes that are often associated with, you know, toxic masculinity, you know, the sort of Madonna whore dichotomy we see later when we have... First, the secretary who... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, which that that is a whole thing. Oh, my gosh. I have so many notes on that. But, you know, she is seen to be the woman who loves him in absence of sex. And her love is predicated on the lack of sex. And then that goes awry. We'll come back around to that in a minute. And then the next incarnation of she is a sex worker, you know, and neither thing works correctly for him, which I thought was a really kind of nuanced take for a film made that early on, you know, to see not only the Madonna whore complex portrayed, but to see it actually not working well for the male lead, because often we see that. And we see them struggle with it. But ultimately, they triumph with one or the other, or they find this seemingly perfect archetypal woman that You know, can be both in some way, shape, or form, but no, for him, it's a disaster no matter which way we cut it.
1: And I think that's an important point that you brought up, Nick. Is less that it's maybe about toxic masculinity versus it is a struggle of impotence and lack of success. He never finished school. He's only read two books in his entire life. He can't Mm -hmm. swing the the girl whose, you know, lover was so ancient he died of old age. He can't get a better job. He can't convince everybody that he's not impotent. He can't even be suspected of negligent homicide and or murder. And nobody even cares that the dead are coming back in his cemetery. So I think that that is a good point is that less toxic masculinity, although some of these things play into like male expectations and things like that, but more so it's like the struggle of impotence and being perceived as impotent, and not being able to successfully convince anybody otherwise. Like, even the doctor, he's like, I need to get my penis cut off, because this woman, she wants me to not have a penis. And the doctor's like, well, I don't have anything to cut off, because you don't have one anyways. It's like, why would you lie? Why would you go to a doctor and lie? If if you wanted to go and get that done... there'd be no reason to lie because literally he has to see it in order to cut it off anyways. So that's a great point. It's way more about impotence and convincing people that you're not impotent or doing acts that prove that you're not. And then like, he can't even he doesn't even get to successfully have sex with she the first time before her husband ruins everything for her. So or in him, I guess. So yeah,
3: it's interesting that he is like so readily willing to go to the doctor to get, you know, to okay. get it removed. But the doctor is, in fact, the one who's like, no, I can't do that. Like, and he tries and then he's like, nope, can't do it. <laughs> I don't know. That's weird because he is so willing to just get rid of it immediately. But it's everyone else yeah. who's like kind of judging him. For, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's the that. one
0: thing he has power over,
3: you True. know, that right.
0: that is a decision you know, that's a moment where he actually thinks, at least, and then it's proven wrong, like he has control over something, over anything, you know, you would think, you know, we assume, oh, yeah, I have control over my own body. And that is proven wrong when the doctor, you know, denies him you know, not even the procedure, but the validation of you know doing the procedure in the first place, or even believing right. that right. he can is capable
1: of having it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Fantastic! That was that was a great point. That was a great point. Let's talk about reasoning in this film. <laughs> okay. I mean, in as far as you can talk about reasoning in any film, because I think you could make that argument for all film all the time, especially Italian film in general. But. So the very beginning of this movie starts out with some questionable thinking and antics, i.e. the caretaker of this graveyard going to this woman and immediately trying to pursue her in her grief. But really what struck me is more having sex with her in the graveyard right next to her husband's grave. And she's like, oh, I never hid anything from him. So why hide this? And it's like, okay, well, all right, let's, we'll, we'll talk about that choice. And then... (laughs) <laughs> the mayor deciding to dig up his own daughter to further his campaign in her glass coffin, which I I have to imagine that the glass coffin thing was just a vanity project for him. But I wanted to talk about those two choices specifically, because I think everything is kind of predicated on the fact that Francesco has sex with she in the graveyard. And also digging up the mayor's daughter's grave kind of predicates the, like, last third or so of the movie. Last two-fifths of the movie. So, having sex in the graveyard. Not even waiting. You're not waiting anymore. We're not do- going through a courtship. You love her. You're gonna have sex with her. How do you feel about that decision? To do that right next to her <laughs> very recently departed husband's grave?
0: I don't even think it really happened. I think okay. this was all in his head. I think it's all a fantasy. Okay. Um, because... It's like the classic, you know, I I think we can take it as, you know, either it's maybe it's toxic masculinity, maybe it's the stuff of bodice rippers, you know, it's that classic, like, lustful romance, love at first sight, kind of bullshit, you know, of like, oh, I'm going to meet the one and I'm going to know instantly and we're going to instantly be in love and be unable to keep our hands off of each other. And, you know, consequences on the outside world be damned, including her dead husband who is buried right here. But our love is more powerful than anything. And so we're going to do it. So I think that was like all a manifestation of his whatever you want to call it, delusion, mania. I don't know exactly. But I think I think the zombies were our first hint. And I think this was him just fully like descending into the fantasy world of his own making and his own desires.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100% with what you say. I don't think we can trust anything we see in this movie as being real. I think it is all happening in his head, perhaps further evidenced by the ending, which I'm sure we will get to. And I I've, I've seen some some, you know, writing on it that think perhaps he's you know um, in a coma or something and this is him trying to reconcile with what he's done that got him there and that sort of thing but I, I don't know if I necessarily fall anywhere in that line I just think the film has this dreamlike quality and all of these things happening are so unrealistic that it is very much just like some sort of weird dream you know it it could be cohen but it also could just be like this dream it's all just in his head it it plays into so much fantasy that we've talked about for this character even though we've discussed all these failures (laughs) of him right but um yeah the the whole thing just is so absurd almost that i don't think anything can be we can't take anything at face value in this film
3: yeah i mean it's there's two decisions there too really i mean like she decides that, and he decides that, I guess, in to some, and it's it's you know it was her husband, and her reasoning is, uh, well, I never kept anything from him, and he would want to know. And then his reasoning is like, well, all right, if that's the case, you know, what, you know, what, I don't know, what better place, what better time than now? And those little lights are floating above them. And he's like, what better thing than watching two lovers make love? Let's do it right now. First of all, I totally agree that like, none of this can be taken at face value. But um, if you are to just dissect that one specific thing, like in a vacuum, yeah, I mean, there's like, there's two decisions being made there. I think her rationale for everything that precedes that too is weird that, you know, he can't, you know, she doesn't want the time of day from him. He can't introduce himself at all. And then he mentions the ossuary and she's like, whoa, yes, I have to see that. And it's like as soon as she sees all the dead people in the ossuary, she's like, this is, I'm, you know, like, I, I'm yours shortly. <laughs> Just give me, a, you know, give me a minute to get back to my husband's grave and then I'm, I'm all yours. And I don't know. that's That's bizarre in itself. Is the literal translation of love of death della morte dellaamore or delamore yes. um of so death of love, it's yeah. like what more literal visual interpretation is there than two people having sex mm-hmm. on top of a recently deceased person's grave in a cemetery, so again, comes back to symbolism you're like none, nothing nothing can be taken to face value. that's like the most clear literal interpretation of the movie's title, so let's put it in there.
2: And doesn't that just feed so much into his ego too? Oh, let me show you this aspect of my job. And oh, it's gotten you so like enthralled and enticed by me that you can't control yourself. And now we're making love on your dead husband's grave, right? It, it's such a, like a weird like ego feeding um, aspect.
3: The first time you they go into the ossuary when all of this stuff like switches. You know, first she doesn't want anything to do with him, and suddenly it all switches. That's the first time where he explicitly says. Like, she's like, this feels like a dream. And he's like, this is my dream. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And Which then weird It dream.
3: might be. Well, yeah. Red, red,
1: red flag. <laughs> yeah. But I was going to say, she she's so enticed by the Oshuary, and then she gets attacked by the skeleton, and she's like, no, I can't. <laughs> and then, she, you know, her clothes get torn off, and then she runs out of the ossuary and then, uh-huh. and then they're able to kiss in the moonlight in front of this gross fountain, and, you know afterwards they
0: well what greater dream for the you know rumored to be impotent cemetery keeper than to have a woman that's you know turned on by death you know that's like oh a skeleton you know
1: <laughs> that's true that is very true that is a, a dream that i mean and and it just like in his dream kind of falls in his lap i yeah. mean literally and figuratively a grieving broken you know emotionally scattered woman coming into both he that he cannot attain initially and then immediately is able to attain the second time and then they're all of a sudden having sex nobody's got clothes on you're like okay
0: all right and he's like yes (laughs) i did this okay so i have a big question based on something brantley said so i read some things that also had the coma theory Mm -hmm. here's a sort of twist off of that Do you think that in real life, he's actually Franco lying there in the hospital in the coma?
2: Mm, That's a good question. Yeah. (sighs) Yes. Okay.
0: Say (laughs) more about that. No, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, please, please. (laughs) Yeah. I'd
2: love to hear your reasoning on it.
3: So the answer is I don't know that I would ever have come to that conclusion had I not done a bunch of reading on it today, but I think I read a bunch of different interpretations of the film, and they differed in a lot of ways, but I think the main takeaway, or at least the common thread through all of the theories, was that it was a coma, and most people seem to think it was Franco's coma, and that Francesco, which is, you know, I don't know that it matters, but the name seems kind of similar to Franco in itself, is like... Basically that Franco may, if you want to take it literally, may or may not have actually killed his family. Possibly killed three prostitutes and seven other people shortly thereafter, then gone home and killed his family, tried to kill himself and wound up in a coma. Um, I don't know that that part matters so much, whether he did do that or whether he's just a dude who's in a coma. Um, I guess that's open to interpretation. But if you do subscribe to the fact that he's in a coma, then the entire movie is basically him... Like reckoning with his his understanding of death and of love. And that Francesco, Francesco then represents like the dark side of both of those things. And Nagi represents sort of the light side of both of those things. And there's actually a lot of compelling evidence to support that theory that I found really interesting. And it really did kind of color the way I went back and I kind of rewatched some bits today and with that sort of through that lens. And, um, there's so much in here that's puzzling still that I don't think there's any one way. That's kind of how I feel about The Shining. Like, I don't think you can just look at it and say, well, this is what I think it is, really. But I do think that's a really, really compelling theory, and there's a lot of evidence that supports that that might be one of the many things that's going on in this movie. So I agree with
2: the compelling evidence, similar names. They both have these sort of dead-end jobs that they seem to have their issues or with or straight-up hate, and... One thing that I read today I thought put it really well when it says, like, um, people who are rising are the living dead, but Franco and Francis are the dying living. Like, they're not really living and existing in life. They're just kind of going through every day, and it is treachery, and um, they're not really experiencing life in any way. And I completely could buy that Francesco is this figment of Franco's imagination as he is in coma and is reconciling with what he's done or what has happened or whatever. So I could certainly buy that they are the same character. The bottom line with my interpretation of this movie is I don't know (laughs) though because I feel like so much of it is just like it could be so many different things. Which is sometimes really compelling in like any film, not just horror, because You know, it it leaves you being more curious and wanting to watch it over and over again. And, you know, for Nick, that's The Shining. For me, that's a movie like The Hitcher. I have no idea what... Some of the symbolism means that movie and I've watched it over and over and I keep thinking it's one thing or different things and I go on little deep dives looking at like mythological figures and things like that. So uh, this Cemetery Man has that very similar vibe to me, but I could 100% buy that Franco is the same character. Absolutely. Because I could buy just about anything with this movie.
1: (laughs) I, I find that really interesting because I hadn't considered that take prior to you just saying that I mean I had thought that maybe like this is a fever dream but I never really thought Franco and Francesco were the same and now it seems very obvious that that is one way that the movie could be interpreted a very valid way but yeah like that's incredibly interesting to think to go back through and think about all of the adventures and misadventures that Francesco went on and Franco thinking okay that would have been me, like, if I could have had my druthers, I would have seduced a mysterious woman in the cemetery, and I would have had a best friend companion who never would tell me no, which I will, I definitely want to get back to that, to the Noggy character. But yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That's a fascinating
0: take on that. I think it's really interesting to look at it from that angle, It makes me immediately want to go back and watch it like three more times, just watching it with that assumption and seeing if it works. And then, you know, looking at some of the other theories and then watching it with that assumption and seeing which one works best for me. You know, um, I'm kind of like you, Brantley, and, and you, Nick, with The Shining, where there are certain films that I like to kind of like, you know, draw my own questionable conclusions about and then read up, see what other people are thinking, and then try to watch it and see if that works for me, you know, knowing that there's Mm -hmm. like no right answer and going through that work of deciding, like testing out the theories and seeing which one works the best for me. And I think this is a movie you can totally do that with. I've never done that in my life no I'm just kidding <laughs> you should it's fun it's a weird kind of fun but it's fun
1: <laughs> no I've, I've definitely done that before it's not like we have a film analysis podcast or I thing. mean <laughs> <laughs> one thing I thought was really fun about this movie and something that you didn't really see at least not largely in films in like the mid to early 1990s is them kids are not safe in this v- film um, <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're a regular kid it doesn't matter if they're a village kid it doesn't matter if they're boy scouts literal actual boy scouts they're gonna get a bullet to the brain and i just thought that was hilarious i mean (laughs) granted like take that how you will and i understand that people will uh have different interpretations about harm coming to children but these are like ghouls there's a very ridiculous bus crash there's a motorcycle Mm. crash there's like this whole thing the the detective is laughing for some reason afterwards. The Nagi is laughing, but that's mostly, I think, because the detective is laughing and Nagi is just a mirror or a, you know, a foil to the action that's happening otherwise. But that's something that you didn't really see very much, especially not outside of horror. But yeah, in the mid to early 90s, you weren't seeing a bunch of dead kids in films. Not very much, anyways.
0: Yeah, especially kind of rando kids, you know it wasn't like some big emotional struggle and you know we lose one this was like hey here's a you know here's a whole bunch of boy scouts that's (laughs) I mean other than like certain like you know shot on video or b or z grade like indie films that were going for that shock value you know like almost trauma-esque but in you know, in something that's a little more cinematic, even you definitely were not seeing that in that era, for sure. And they wrote an entire
1: song about it. They wrote they had like at the funeral of all the kids, they had a song about how the Boy Scouts will never make it to the Boy Scout picnic, and they never should have gone. And I was just like, this is this is fantastic. I thought it was really funny. But I could absolutely see how somebody could get whiplash going from like funny to serious to charming mm-hmm. to heartwarming in this movie. Just like, okay, now we got dead kids. And then immediately afterwards, Francesco's having to shoot them. <laughs> so it's pretty intense. It's like a lot of whiplash. I don't know if you guys felt like that. If you felt like the tone was just like all over the place for this movie.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's why when 30 or 40 minutes in I was just like I just gotta sit back for the ride because this thing is gonna be a roller coaster (laughs) I'm just I just gotta be here for it
3: that's one of the reasons I think that you know they can get away with something like that like killing a bunch of children is just because the the absurdity of everything that's happening around that like it doesn't play itself straight and if it did I think killing you know seven or eight children on screen would probably not have gone over (laughs) as they were finishing the film yeah, and, and it works. And it's that's the first... I well, mean, it's not the first time, but I think it's also interesting. Like They make such a point of saying, like, seven days later, they come back. But they, like, throw that rule out the window immediately. Oh, yeah. It's gone. And then so it's, quick. like, yeah. it's so bizarre that there's, like, no logic to even that. Like, the one thing that you would think there are... Like, this is the rule of the film that we just wrote and set. But no, fuck mm. that. We're going to, like, throw that out the window.
0: Well, even when Death comes and talks to Francesco and he's like... Okay, but don't kill the dead ones, kill the living ones. And you're like, but wouldn't they and somehow it's implied that like, well if he kills if he kills them, then they won't come back, which doesn't make any sense. And yet that's kind of how the film moves forward from there. Right. So yeah, the rules are just kind of all over the place. Yeah.
1: You can't uh it's not a rule book, unfortunately. It's no. just a, a very, it's somebody writing down sentences and then just being like, this works. Okay, now it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Well, it, we can't wait seven days for her to wake up. So let's just keep it <laughs> going. Let's just keep rolling. Because we don't have that many days. We don't have that many shooting days. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to talk about the narration. The aspect of the movie where Franco is narrating the film. And it kind of feels like a noir, like a crime mm-hmm. noir, where you you're like... He's going to go and get the cash from Bugsy or whatever. I'm just making (laughs) something up. But yeah, the narration I thought was fantastic because it goes between actually being like uh exposition to being like this like flowery poetry at moments. I wanted to ask what you guys all thought
0: about it. Juliet, you go first. Well, you know, the sassy thing I said when we were watching that I'm gonna say now, which is I'm pretty sure you and McGregor watched this movie and took all of his Moulin Rouge! Rouge voiceover tips from this movie. Because it's all like this very whispered, very British like the woman I loved is dead. And I was like, wow, this is just like, I think you and McGregor watched this. So that's my take on that. What uh, about you guys?
3: <laughs> I feel like I have nothing to add on the narration front because it's random it's so it it's like it's, it's not totally yeah. consistent it comes and it goes and sometimes he is saying these really like brooding dark noir type things but half the time he's talking about how beautiful this woman is how much he's like head over heels in love with her and it's like the opposite of what you would expect in that kind of narration i also think it's interesting how sometimes the narration plays against the dialogue like he says like will i ever or like whatever, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen is said in narration. And then he says out loud, will I ever see her again? And then that same scene is repeated the next night, only that time it's all narration. It's just, I don't know, it's dreamlike. It's It's surreal. Um, The narration adds to that. But also, it's a really, like, philosophical film. He says things like, you know, what's the difference between the living dead and the dying living and all this stuff? And a lot of that stuff comes in the narration. So I think it's important in that sense, you know, he's never talking to some. there's no dialogue between, all the dialogue between characters mostly is, like, ridiculous, you know, it's absurd, absurdity, like, the detective being like, oh, you have a gun? Oh, good, you know, you're safe then, which is, like, the best line in the whole film. But, like, all of the actual, like, sort of deep philosophical things that really make you think about, you know, like, is this all on his head, et cetera, et cetera, is basically his narration.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I thought that the part that you were referencing that the living dead and the dying living happening at the same time that Claudio is eating the girl that thinks that Claudio is her boyfriend, one of the girls who thinks that Claudio is her boyfriend. And she says, I'll yeah. have any anyone I want eat me. And it's like, okay, all right. And then he sure. says this like beautiful thing about the dying living and you're like, cool juxtaposition with this very ridiculous scene And then having, like, this moment of clarity and and saying something very profound. And you have to kind of wonder, was that the plan going in? Or did they have to do this to kind of, like, string
0: the movie together? (laughs) Mm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I find that the voiceover, in certain respects, it's almost like Hamlet-esque, you know? Like, the, the whole, if you string together all of the voiceover, it's like, you know, to be or not to be, you know, in a way. And I would be curious to know a little more about that scripting process to know, like, where in the process did that come? You know, and how did these sort of two things fit together? Um, This overarching dreamy narration, this absurdist, you know, action and dialogue, and then the sort of overarching thing of, you know, this is probably all an absurdist dream or, hallucination or whatever, depending on your interpretation. Like, I'm fascinated by the way things like that are written, you know, and then how the filmmaking comes into it, too. You know, was that all on the page, or did some of that then come out in the technique?
2: That's a really good question.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And well, this is based on a graphic novel. It's based on a comic book, so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this stuff that ends up being his narration is stuff that's in like you know a box in the panel that are his thoughts or something within the
3: graphic novel. So I'd be very curious to read it and 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 know that. Apparently, it's based on a novel, and then that same author wrote Dylan Dog. A graphic oh, novel that's oh, similar oh, and then oh. the character of delamorte delamore or like Francesco delamore then wound up also in that comic book at some point that's what i was reading so i'm not sure how oh, faithful me. and no well no i mean it's a, the same thing applies i was just like it's a weird history where like the novel came out mm-hmm. then this other comic book then the movie and then that character went back into the comic book it's just bizarre interesting yeah i've been okay. wanting
0: to get my hands on the comic book as a as a comic book person and as somebody who has written comic books like you can apply a lot of those cinematic techniques like voiceover and things like that and do it really beautifully on the page in the same way that you can do it in a movie like this.
2: You know what's the saying? Like novels are internal and and films are external. You know you need to show not tell, and so much in novels is like the what is happening in the thoughts of a character often, rather than that's something you can't really show in a film without using something like narration. And I feel like comic books and graphic novels very much fall into that film aspect where they're external as well, because you have to show exactly what is happening, but you do still get that ability to sort of have your character's thoughts within it. So it's sort of this kind of in between almost uh, between like the novel and film in that it has to kind of straddle both worlds essentially.
0: Definitely. Yeah. At least
1: this one is more successful than Veronica. Glenn Danzig's uh... oh. oh boy was that <laughs> movie fun. I couldn't
3: finish it, but
1: Yeah, same. Uh, also couldn't finish it. I really wanted to. I, I know. really, really wanted to. <laughs> I am excited to see House of Vampires though. Or uh, Death Rider in the House of Vampires. Haven't seen it yet, but uh Spaghetti Western can't can't uh, can't turn it down. Yeah. Oh, That's sounds fun. Um, <laughs> anyways, um <laughs> to kind of loop back to what you were saying about the Madonna horror complex. I was thinking about this, like the evolution in which Francesco experiences love throughout this movie, whether or not you think it's a dream sequence or that this is a figment of Franco's imagination, it's interesting how Francesco like moves through the world and experiences love in very different ways. Um, first with she in the cemetery, the grieving widow, the um, broken woman that needs to be rescued and saved, and he's intimate with her, and then immediately she dies. At least he thinks so. And then he ends up actually killing her. And then it's like, oh, shit, I didn't mean to. And then seeing her again as a secretary and then sacrificing for love, being the one to say, okay, I am going to go in the most ridiculous way possible and get my penis cut off so that I can be with this woman who has a phobia of penises, apparently. And then her coming back and saying, actually, I like sex. So I can't be with you because I'm going to get married to the mayor. But I love you like a friend and then later another iteration of she coming and being you know forward and everything he wants and they have this crazy night and he's able to push past this weird medicine that made his penis not work and then immediately afterwards being like oh she's actually a sex worker and now you have to pay. Which we looked it up. That it's like fifty six dollars American. That's how much he was charged. It was a hundred thousand Italian lira, fifty six dollars okay. in today's money. Who knows what it was in ninety four? Economy. Oh, is very that,
2: that's. Oh, that's with inflation. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was um, in my head wondering what that was with inflation.
1: <laughs> I, I yeah. So I mean, who knows what it was then uh, in nineteen ninety four? I didn't look. I didn't oh. do that much math. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't didn't look through, I didn't look for the historic calculator, but maybe I should. But then a different kind of failed love story. So he's going through all these iterations of love in these really very painful and toxic ways. And then eventually the movie comes to a climax with him being like, no, I'm going to leave this all behind. And then realizing oh, the only real love that I have ever experienced is with Nagi. Yeah. My friend who is, you know, he has some problems, obviously. He has some issues with talking. He has very few friends, uh, just Francesco, as far as we know. And that's like the only true love that he actually experiences in this entire movie. And he kind of comes to realize that at the point where he almost actually kills him. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was such an interesting arc to have all of these toxic experiences with love and then realize like, oh, the only love I actually had was with my friend. And then you're like, is it a snow globe? Was this all in a snow globe? Was this, did this actually mean anything? Who knows?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a a beautiful end. I mean, not to be terribly cheesy about it, but him coming to the realization that he doesn't need carnal or romantic love, that actually this very pure love he has in the form of friendship is has sustained the entire time. Now, when it comes to Nyagi, I don't want to reduce this character or reduce, like, take away, you know, the fact that we have a character who seems to be intellectually disabled. But I do wonder if actually the speech thing, the only saying ya the whole time, again, because we're in a dream, was less about this character being disabled and more about this character not being heard about Francesco's inability to actually listen to and hear his friend and sort of only see him as this constant. And then at the end, he actually hears him and realizes perhaps that maybe he's the one who hasn't been able to articulate some things and is only able to speak in, you know, single syllables. What did you guys think about their relationship?
3: What you just said is a really interesting take. I think you're, I mean, I think that's right. I think, um, I think if you, again, I think you have to disregard, because now I'm looking at it through this lens of it's all in Franco's head, and that actually colors their relationship a lot. If I disregard that, I think you just, like, absolutely nailed it. That, you know, he's, yeah, he's, this is, you know, if we're talking about his impotence and stuff, Miyagi is, like, in his mind, the one person he has control over. And right at the end, that dynamic has flipped itself when he's come to realize that, actually, in reality, it was not just someone that he was controlling, but it was his only friend in the whole world. If you look at it through the Franco thing, there's a bunch of other, like, cool elements that i thought were really amazing but again i don't like we could talk about that later or not at all but i feel like that's its own its own thing so brantley you should take over
2: so throughout the whole movie i was wondering kind of what nyagi kind of meant or like represented because it didn't feel like 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 nobody felt like a real character in this film like a, a living person who lived in the real world neither did nyagi and i was like okay is this supposed to be like it or something because he's like eating constantly and giving into like a lot of like desires and things like that but if we're looking at it through the lens of it being in his head you know it, is it a friendship or is it more him kind of getting in touch with the part of himself that actually like enjoys life and like enjoys the things that the world has to offer because throughout this, like we talk about, he's, he could be construed as one of the dying living. He, you know, he's not really experiencing the world. Doesn't seem to get joy out of really anything, but Yagi does. And he's viewed as a simpleton throughout it, but maybe it's more him like recognizing, Oh, this, I need to open up to this aspect of myself who can, you know, take pleasure in the world, essentially.
1: Yeah, with banana skeddy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> banana pa- banana pasta, uh weird chocolate ice cream, maybe. I think that's what he was eating. You know, just covering the leaves in the wheelbarrow, trying to keep them from mm-hmm. blowing away. A futile gesture, but one that Nagi is still doing. So, yeah, I kind of came to that realization as we were talking about it. I was like, oh, that's that's really what... That's at least what I pieced together towards the end is Nyagi is like the only true friend that he's ever had or that aspect of himself that he should have been embracing this entire time and listening to and appreciating. But instead he was like, no, I'm going to have sex with this lady in the cemetery and we're going to, it's going to be great. We're clearly going to have a healthy relationship based off of this. (laughs) is The foundation for a healthy relationship, right here. I I really i think that this is a very sweet love story. (laughs) Um, I did want to say that the death puppet that they used, I love it, (laughs) yeah, was fantastic. I was really not expecting that. I felt like it was kind of a showstopper moment for the movie where you're just like, Wow, I'm just like so taken aback by this presentation of death, and then of course, it says something like nonsense, you're like, Okay, cool. But, I mean, if death came to you in a graveyard, you'd probably be like, uh, okay, (laughs) sure. But in general, I think that the effects in this movie, the squibs, tons of gunshots, like squibs and fake heads and practical effects. The only only thing I clocked as being digital or added in after was that fake snow at the end, Mm -hmm. which I don't know what that was about, but (laughs) that was kind of rough. That
3: was unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but otherwise I thought that the the effects were like super solid. Mm-hmm. Very much in that Italian tradition of like overdoing the makeup, latex, the greens, the purples, the contact lenses, things like that. But I think it was really effective and I didn't think it lost very much for being in 1994.
0: Oh yeah, no. Yeah, I thought I thought it looked it looked great and it honestly all of the effects and The very intentional look of the zombies slash ghouls to kind of keep in that early Tom Savini Romero kind of grayish look just contributed to the surrealism of it all and the dreamlike state of Mm -hmm. uh, what we were experiencing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like if this had come out in the mid-80s as opposed to like the mid-90s, then the director would have been tapped to do like a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel or something. Mm -hmm. Much in the same way that... um, I'm blanking on the name of the director but he he did Nightmare 2 because they'd watched Alone in the Dark and it had that same like dream like quality and that was one of the reasons he got tapped to to direct it. Um but yeah, the practical effects on this are like fantastic and they're really really fun to to, to watch and check out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: if it had come out in the mid 80s, I feel like this mm-hmm. would be talked about a lot more. It's rare yeah. that you say a movie is behind the times. <laughs> you know, Most of the time we'll say like, oh, this movie was ahead of its time. We just talked about Repo. Repo was ahead oh. of its time. The effects, maybe not so much. The put togetherness of the film, maybe not so much. But the, the topics and the subjects mm-hmm. that they were talking about, definitely ahead of the time. Now, this movie, I think you're absolutely right. If this movie was made in the mid 80s, it probably would have been a blockbuster and everybody would have been talking about it because that Italian giallo zombie film was
0: so popular and so well liked. You know, not to swing the pendulum all the way back, but maybe it is ahead of its time because and maybe this is because I'm getting ready to go see it tomorrow and I've been Reading all the critiques about it, including don't take mushrooms before this movie. Thank you, Joaquin Phoenix, for that tip. Which is, this may, and I say this having not seen the film, but based on the trailer, feels very much in the vein of like, Bo is afraid, Bo is yeah. not afraid. Is the afraid. Ari Aster thing, the new one. Yes. <laughs> I'm kidding, see. Yeah. But it does feel like it fits in that sort of weird, like... Is this real life? Is this a dream? Is this somebody's Mm. hallucination or manifestations? What's real? What's not? What's a fantasy world? I'll report back on whether that is an accurate take or not on a movie I have not seen. But it does feel like it could be very of this time given, you know, some of the horror that we're seeing now. Time
1: is a circle, and it's an illusion, so Mm. it's not real. So the movie can simultaneously be ahead of its time and also behind the times, and we would never know Yeah, because time isn't real. (laughs) And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. We see a lot of movies where they... (laughs) They use, uh, to varying degrees of success, obviously, digital effects or CGI, and I think in the 90s we were really getting to that point where people wanted to use that more and more versus practical effects, but I always have a true appreciation for practical effects in a movie. And skipping the digital and, you know, going the latex route, even if it looks terrible, I'm like, at least they've, you know, at least they tried because recently I rewatched the 96 version of Spawn. And mm. I can tell you that when digital effects don't work, they really don't work and they don't hold up. And I yeah. tend to be a person that will like give a lot of grace for bad effects so I'm really glad that this very low budget movie went the practical route. Like let me see those weird discolorations in the latex versus your skin so that I don't have to see terrible digital bad effects. Pixels. So much better.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, bad pixels. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Again, the movie is gorgeous and I think that the makeup effects are a large part of that, but even the you know lesser effects I think are used in like almost a poetic way. Like you got those floating orbs of light that, you know, you can, I think, see the wire at one point, but they're used to this, like, really beautiful way, and the way that they move and stuff is way more important than the way that they look and, like, what they represent in that scene is way more important than the way they look, and um, you know, and, and, and their color and the saturation and everything about them look fine, and they would have looked way worse digital, and to, to your point about the death puppet, it's not even just about the death puppet, which I think, again, in a vacuum might not look great, but it's, like, that the whole context in which that scene plays out, and like the phone book burning, and there's like these black pages of all of the people that have died that he's like crossed their names off of that float up into the air and like become this. It's it's gorgeous. Like I I cannot overstate how beautiful this movie is. And like none of that stuff would work with digital. Like I'm thinking, you know, a movie around the same time, like a contemporary would be like The Frighteners, Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, where there is a digital death and it looks great but if you replace that in your mind like that digital death in place of the one in this movie it would be absolute garbage
0: oh yeah
1: <laughs> totally yes, i agree i fully agree i just think that the the work looked so good mm. and there's so many movies where you know the practical effects get removed from the movie and yeah. in place of digital so and i always think that's really sad we saw my bloody valentine which had a lot of that stuff cut out a lot of the the um practical effects cut out and it was reintroduced in the director's cut and the director said something like i'm so glad that we get to honor the work that went into this Mm -hmm. and i so i feel like whenever i see a good practical effect i'm like i really need to honor the work that went into this because i appreciate it so much Mm -hmm. yeah for sure
2: in terms of My Blade Valentine, the special effects folks too had to like, like really like work and develop like specific effects that would like happen on screen. Like when the head goes into that boiling water and everything, that like actually was designed and like you could have shown the whole thing where it just like dissolves in the water like that because they put the work and time into that craft to make it so that it would do exactly, you know what it, um, you know, is doing. You know, you, I think it cuts a couple times in that scene but you know, I think um, in the research i had done for it they said that like you could have just played that out over 30 seconds because they designed that whole face to like melt and dissolve away within 30 seconds in the water so the amount of craftsmanship that went into those effects especially in my bloody valentine is like really impressive so yeah it's great that we get to see that so
1: do you guys have any notes that we didn't already touch on anything you want to bring up or say I don't think I have
2: anything more of substance to add. Let me put it that way. So, Nick, if there's anything you want to jump in with, go for it.
3: There's so much about that Franco thing that I think is just incredible and, like, rich for discussion, the more that I've read about it and the more that I've thought about it. So that's the only thing.
0: Say more about it. Yeah, yeah. Lay it on us.
3: All right. Okay. I'll try and be quick and succinct. But basically, you know, I read a lot of, like, the sort of compelling evidence that this was, in fact, a dream in Franco's head as he was laying in a coma. And then I went back and watched it and found a few more of my own. And a couple of the things, which I had never noticed before, and I've seen this movie several times, you know, of course, there's the snow globe sort of allegory thing going on. And the idea that like, basically, Francesco lives within this island or this bubble. And then when you see him visit Franco later on, the camera zooms out, and he's in this void trapped, like, with nothing around him. So there's a parallel there. Again, the idea that Francesco is, like, representing um, the dark side of love and death and, and Nagi is the light side. Nagi is the only one who successfully kind of finds love with that head. Nagi likes the sunlight, and Francesco comments, oh, the weather's gone bad as soon as the sun comes out, which is, like, a literal light and darkness thing. Francesco never understands death. He can never put the skull puzzle together, but Nagi does it immediately which is interesting. And what I noticed this last viewing was really interesting was if you go into the Franco scene at the end, when Francesco actually kneels next to him, he very much looks like the literal like sort of devil on my shoulder thing where this guy's lying in a coma and Francesco's just there a little thing. And it's at that moment that Franco basically dispels the dark side and says like, no, I don't know you get out of here. And that's when he turns and he drives off and he finds out this is indeed a snow globe. And um, Nagi starts talking for the first time and Francesco can't say anything. And it kind of goes back into the snow globe. And when you see the snow globe at the end, this is what I never noticed, their positions have switched from the snow globe at the beginning, which is also really interesting. So there are like two practical snow, snow globes that they made, which I'd, I would never in a million years have noticed had I not read about that. So like, I
0: had not noticed that at all. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, yeah, I
3: had to go back and check when I read that. I was like, no, they didn't. I've seen this movie too many times, <laughs> but absolutely they did.
0: So initially,
1: when I watched this movie, I was just like, this is bad shit. Like, it's just crazy. It's bonkers. Um, but it really, like that take and, and going through and thinking, okay, this is Franco, this is Franco processing through whatever bad things he's done and kind of reuniting and marrying and, and making those two halves of himself come back together and realize there are benefits to having that cunning and bad and dark side and benefits to having and embracing that light and happy and loving side together Uh, It really adds a whole new layer to the movie that's not bad shit. (laughs) And, And, you know, actually, like what you had mentioned when we first started watching this, or when we first started discussing this, there is a through line in this movie. There is a something, a driving force that takes us from the beginning to the end, which if you did not think about that as I did, you're like, wow, this is just several random scenes kind of put together with a snow globe at the beginning and end and so it really adds another layer of depth i think that that's absolutely that's just a fascinating a fascinating way to look at that movie through that lens
3: yeah i mean i have a whole new appreciation for this movie i really do um having read that and it's like it is also a movie that's just a series of vignettes and i almost kind of like regret (laughs) that i'm not going to be able to go back and watch it that way like ever again but I have this whole new thing again, like my relationship with The Shining. It's like, I I don't I'm going to like do deep dives into this movie every time I watch it now. And that's a whole new adventure that I can't wait to go on.
0: I think that's fun. Although I do totally understand what you mean about like, no longer getting to just watch it. It's like, hey, this is just this wild, crazy thing. Um, and you're like, oh, now I have to actually think about this.
3: I know what a bummer. <laughs>
0: yeah so first and foremost thank you guys for being on with us this was so much fun tell folks where they can check out horror drafts and all of your stuff
2: yeah absolutely i mean you can find us um, on any podcast uh, provider that you listen to so uh, just search for horror drafts and uh, we should come up Uh, you can find us on instagram at horror drafts and i believe we're horror drafts on twitter as well but to be honest with you We're not on Twitter very much anymore. It's mostly just Instagram at this point. But uh, you can find us there.
0: And up next for us, we are diving back into the world of George Romero. But we're doing a non-zombie film this time. What? Because I can't always have my way. I didn't have anything to do with this. I just want to make that clear. You know, I thought it's time for another Romero movie, but let's, you know, you can only listen to me talk about Romero zombies for so long. So let's go with something a little different. We're going to uh, check out 1972's Season of the Witch. We've got Housewives. We've got Witchcraft. We've got, you know, our favorite topics about why average people should not dabble in the other side. Uh, and it should be a great time. Yeah, all my favorite things.
1: Housewives, yeah. witchcraft, telling people why they shouldn't do witchcraft. That's uh-huh. my favorite stuff. So <laughs> I'm excited. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com.
0: We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our
1: theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records.
0: Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliette. And I'm Teresa.
1: Until next time, stay scary.